everyone. Um, Matt Roberts here, executive producer on Outlander. And we're here on the official Outlander podcast, the Droughtlander version. And today I have a very, very special guest who needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Bear McCreary, our composer. He's been with us from day one. Uh, say hi to everybody, Bear. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks for having me on here, Matt. This is going to be a blast. Yeah, it is. I've been looking forward to this as soon as we announced it. I think even as soon as the, the Outlander was sold, Bear's name came up and said he's doing the music for it. So that's how long Bear's <laughs> been uh, with the show. Uh, we'll jump right into some of these questions because I think uh, a lot of the questions I could uh, pose you are right here on the sheet in front of me. So how did your musical journey begin and what led you to writing scores for television shows and films? Well, those are posed as two questions, but thankfully the answer is the same thing. It was the music from television and films that made me want to become a musician. Ever since I was about five years old, I uh, went and saw Back to the Future when I was five, and I fell in love with these big soaring orchestral themes, and I took a little Fisher-Price tape recorder in the next night, made my mom take me a second time, and I held it up <laughs> above my head to record the music, and then I'd listen back, and I'd be like, I wish those Actors would stop talking. Like, I want to hear this music. <laughs> and then I heard, I, I discovered you could hear the music on its own on a soundtrack. And that sort of began my, my lifelong um, obsession with and love of film music. I, I was taking piano lessons at around that same time. That was an easy, like, it's like chocolate and peanut butter, putting those two together. Like, I started playing yeah. music in that style. And, you know, then to piggyback into how I became a professional, um, well, that's Ronald D. Moore was yeah. the first person to take a chance on a 24-year-old kid um, on Battlestar Galactica. So that was my right. first job. Um, oh, wow. So that was how that, um, I transitioned from being a sort of enthusiastic amateur overachiever to like being a professional. You had obviously written things before. So were, were you demoing things or how, how did that come out? I, uh, in the early part of my career, I met... Elmer Bernstein, one of the industry's most legendary film composers. And I was among his last protégés. I worked with him for about 10 years. I met him when I was in high school. Right. And I worked with him. I, like, organized stuff at his house. I house-sat his dogs one summer. <laughs> I orchestrated for him. It was the first time I ever got a check for music services. I was uh, orchestrating some old music. Uh, right. An old film of his called Kings of the Sun that the scores had been lost. And so he dumped the whole sketchbook on me and goes, reorchestrate the whole movie while I'm gone. While you're, oh, wow. you're house-sitting and taking care of the dogs. Right. reorchestrate the movie. And I came out of college um, having done about 30 or 40 student films. I went to USC and I spent more time in the film school than in the music school, hanging out with filmmakers, uh, doing shorts, doing um, live orchestra. I, I, I just assembled a group of people that, engineers and, and musicians that led me to Battlestar Galactica. And it was that same group of people that actually came to Outlander with me as well. But those student films, conducting those little orchestras that I'd done in college, working with a mixing engineer to deliver a mix that sounded good, all that experience suddenly came right to the forefront. I had my team yeah. built up and I could call them and say, hey, I, I, have a, I have a budget now. Like, it's not like the student films. Like, I can pay you something. So yeah. that all paid off and, and 
I mean, look, if I had done a bad job on the first episode of Battlestar, I don't think you and I would be sitting here talking. We wouldn't have that conversation, but you did yeah. a, a, a miraculous, fabulous job on it, and and here we are. Um, geez, years and years later. Let's get to the second question, because we could talk about that all day long. Um, <laughs> what is a common misconception people have about music composition for TV? I can tell you what mine was. Um, yeah? The misconception is that it says music by... Bear McCreary, or it says music by John Williams or music by Hans Zimmer. That means that every decision regarding the music was obviously made by that person. Um, And as I emerged into the business and started collaborating with people, I realized that you are working with everybody involved. The editors, the producers, the director, the writers, the studio, the network, everybody is involved. It's It's a family. And yep. it can be dysfunctional like a family. But yep. that notion that the composer is the Beethoven-like maestro that makes all the decisions, you know, as great as, you know, even John Williams is. Well, if you love the scores to his Spielberg movies, Spielberg had some influence in that. Wait. And that really was what blew my mind is that film yep. is such a collaborative medium. And the credits that you see flash up on the screen do not adequately um, convey that. I agree. I think that, you know, you see written by or even, you know, the, the, the actors or you know, the cast or the directed by and, and so much input from, from everybody goes into almost every decision. Yes. Yeah. The buck finally stops at the end of the road, you know, but I think surround yourself with brilliant people and brilliant things happen. And that's what, you, you know, we, we, of course, over the course of Outlander have had disagreements with you. Very few, uh, I believe. But it's like, hey, you feel passionately about something. And we look at ourselves a lot of times and go, well, you know, he is the <laughs> expert on the music part of this. So maybe we should but, you know, listen to more him. Often, more often than that, though, Matt, is you guys will bring something up that I just missed. There's something, you know, you guys have all this information that I don't. The Fraser's Ridge theme is a perfect one where I was like, I saw that scene and I go, it's Jamie and Claire standing on the clifftop. We got to do the Jamie and Claire theme, obviously. But then when I talked with everybody, they're like, no, this is the beginning of a whole other thing. And it would like, you know, you guys really told me something that I wouldn't have known based on that episode. And boy, am I glad that that happened, you know? So those collaborations are great. You know, they're useful. We always have a really big meeting at the beginning of every season, have a sit down and talk about themes and talk about new places to go with the music because we we both, we all want to explore that. We don't want you just pushing by Claire theme, Jamie theme, you know, we just don't want, you know, and, and uh, when we have those meetings, I love the passion and how excited you get about, oh yes, I, you know, I want to take it in this direction or I want to go in that direction. And, that, and those are, um, those are really fun uh, meetings to have. Uh, here's yeah. another question. What elements do you take in consideration when you compose music for a historical drama such as Outlander, and how do you integrate them into your music? It's a great question, um, and it's something that I put a lot of research into. I feel uh, very strongly that the time period in geography and geopolitics of your story um, not only should be integrated into the score, but you'd be a fool not to because it's such a great shorthand. It's such a great way to communicate things to the audience on an intrinsic level. You don't have to understand Parisian Baroque music to know in your heart of hearts when that viola da gamba starts playing and we're in Paris, 
something about cultural osmosis, you understand that's correct. Whereas if I'd had an electric guitar with a wah pedal on it, you would understand it's not correct. Um, So in a way, it's even easier. I cut my teeth on a lot of sci-fi and horror, and I ended up doing a lot of research for that. With the project like Outlander or, or Black Sails or Da Vinci's Demons, it almost makes it easier. I have a starting place. Now, with that said, it's very important to stress also I learn what the instruments are, why they were used, who wrote for them, who played them. I learn all that stuff so I can break those rules as needed um, yeah. because I am writing an emotional score, an evocative um, score that needs, above all else, to give you, the viewer, an emotional reaction. It helps me to know that I know those rules and I'm breaking them on purpose. It's not ignorance. So I think that that translates, the the word is like a respect. I have a healthy respect for the music of the time period. And of course, I I think my knowledge of the music of the time period is part of the reason I got the job, so. Well, I I think so too. And I also think that, you know, over the course of, we've kind of changed the elements as we go, as the time periods have changed, as as the location, you know, like you, you said, Paris, we've been in the Caribbean, but over the course of, the feeling of the show changes. So the music, of course, you've integrated that um, uh, with the story. And and that's something that I think a lot of people talk about, you know, with, with yeah. regards to Outlander. So what does the composing process look like with assistant composers? Does the amount they compose depend on your workload? I have such high praises for all of them too. Scoring for television is a team sport and there's a lot of minutes and there's an intense um, pressure. So I am very fortunate that I've worked with people that I've worked with for years. Many of them are people that got out of school and started working for me in in a way that I could kind of teach them how to write music and approach it philosophically the way I do. Um, and, you know, the amount I lean on them just truly depends on the schedule. Um, in any given episode, there, there's, there's cues that are really significant that will take me longer to write. Matt and Merrill will have more thoughts. I will have more revisions on those cues. You know, like, like I remember in season five, the fiery cross scene, you know, we just, and, and you, you have to take the time to get it right. But any time yeah. I go back and I, I rewrite, rewrite that or revise that, well, there's some other cue that isn't getting done yet. So that's where I, you know, I rely on that. I'm sure, Matt, in the way that you rely on a room of writers. Yep. It's exactly, it's exactly the same thing. You know, you, you know, there's, and I think you hit on it. There's always a deadline somewhere, you know, there's a clock ticking and, and you, you rely on the talent around you to, you know, sometimes even make, make, you know, I know I rely on talent around me to make me look better. So, uh, absolutely. And, and I think Matt, you and I are both in the same position is where we're, we are department heads. And that means like, we are keeping an eye on making sure that all those big important moments, you know, for me, it's like, what are these new themes? What is the new sound? What is the guiding philosophy of this season as compared to last? Part of the luxury of being able to lavish time on those big questions is knowing I've got a team that can help pick up, ah, there's 30 extra minutes that suddenly showed up in this episode or or the deadline has moved and, and, and I need to stay in a pure creative place or I'm not doing my job. That's exactly right. And we, we may, you never know, we may call you and go, hey, Bear, we need something completely new for this episode that we didn't even tell you about. Yeah, I appreciate that shout out to the, to the team and they, they really yeah. appreciate it too. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Joanna Payne who's helping me on this new season. She's been awesome. Why did you decide to do a different theme song every season? 
was that something you planned on doing or was it something that thought up spontaneously based on different locations taking place in Outlander? Let me just start by saying that it is very rare for television shows to change their music every season. And I think Matt and I now know why people don't do this. <laughs> because yeah. the amount of work each season to change the title is increased like logarithmically. It does not get easier. It gets harder. Ex expo exponentially yeah. harder as we go. And we learn it every season. And every season we go, okay, it's going to get easier. And it just gets harder. Never. I know. And this new one that we're working on now, I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's like this one, I, I mean, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about all of them. But, but I was looking at the amount of time that it's been in play. And it's like, this is insane. Um, with that said, I'm super excited about it. Ultimately, it was a spontaneous thing. I, Ron and I like everybody else making a TV show, didn't think, hey, let's make our job 10 times harder every season. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was that second season. Yeah. Where do we start when, season two? It was when we moved France. into Paris. Yeah. And I'm like, I got bagpipes and Scottish marching drums and all the visuals are going to be Paris. And it wasn't even a discussion. Like Ron and I, I think, talked about it for 30 seconds. And we're like, oh, we got to change this, right? Yes. Okay. That was the end of the discussion. The show dictated that we do it. It wasn't really, a, like you said, it was no decision because the show dictates that we do it. Now, I know with season five, we, we were in this, from four to five, we were in the same place. And technically, we could have stayed with the same theme. Yeah. But um, when I threw that idea of the coral by you, your eyes lit up and we were in the same room at that time. And, and I knew, I was like, okay. And then you ran with it and turned it into something that I think just is so beautiful and it just really elevated the main title to me. Like every cue I write in the show, there's a demo that I produce that I play for uh, producers and studio network. I use, you know, often samples and stuff to just sort of do a mock-up that sounds pretty good. In the case of the choral thing, there aren't really samples that do a good job. So we assembled a choir three times yeah. and recorded the whole thing live from scratch. First was just a prototype. Uh, and there were all kinds of discussions. I mean, it sounds like it landed in this beautiful, easy place, but it wasn't easy. Do no. we have Rhea Yarbrough, the singer from all the other sh uh, seasons? Does she start? Do we have her in it at all? Does yeah. she coexist? I mean, every combination you can imagine, there's a demo. I could make an yeah. entire album of like <laughs> the season five demos. Yeah. Um, but that's what made it fun. And it also, you know, I think the benefit there is that Matt, you know, you and Meryl, and then especially our partners at Stars and Sony, they can hear something and say, yes, no, I don't like this, I don't like that. I, we don't have to talk about it in a hypothetical sense. And I, th I think that's, for me, that's what makes it special is that, that everybody still has that passion for the thing that they're doing to elevate, the to keep it going, to keep the scenery and, and the feeling fresh and new every season. The first episode, I was at The Mix. And as the title hit, I look, I glance over at Ron Moore's face and there's a tear rolls down his face. And I'm, I've done four seasons of Battlestar with this man, some big emotional yeah. scenes, I've, I've not seen that. And yeah. I saw that 
And I, I just thought so there's something special about what we're doing here that's really landing with, well, certainly with the people in this room, but I could just feel it. I was like, this is going to resonate with, with people out there, you know? Yeah. One of my prides is our main title. I love that we change the visuals to go with the story, that we change the music to go with the story, and that it is a surprise. So when you come in, come in off of Droughtlander, that you're immediately going to get something new. And I'm really excited about the new one. And I love that we're giving them all kinds of, you know, we're teasing this out because <laughs> it's coming. Um, yeah. Here's another question. Do you compose the theme prior to the season being filmed? Or do you wait until a season is wrapped filming to compose? Do you start scoring each episode as dailies come in or after your episode is edited and completed? Uh, the, the, the process for doing the main title is um, madness, as we went over before. So as soon as the concept comes in, I'm thinking about it. As soon as it was clear our show was a hit, I'm already going don't we go to the Caribbean? Like, I was yeah. thinking about that years in advance, you know? Yeah. But with it, when it comes to a typical episode or, or, a, or just a scene, I have to see it, and I have to see it cut together. No offense to any writers on this podcast, the scripts don't help because yeah. it bypasses the input of the actors, the directors, the cinematographer, and most crucially, the editors. Because yeah. when all that happens and there's a pace to the scene, there's a, there's a rhythm to it, and there's great editors. Yeah. When I see the rough cut, it's like there's this voice that speaks to me and I go, I know exactly what needs to go there. But if I do too much work, if I make decisions early, it can throw me off. You know what I mean? Like I can sort of sure. get an idea in my head and then as production happens and as a cut comes together, things change. It's a, it's a, I like to have the reaction that fans have as much yeah. as I can. I like to just watch an episode cold because I'm a fan of the show and then I go, okay, what can I do to help this and bring out yeah. these emotional beats even more. The next one. After composing a piece of music for a scene, how often do you make changes? Is it after you've seen what it looks like on film or do you change before? My typical process, I like to have a 24-hour a period with each cue so that I write it and then I walk away from it. Ideally, sleep on it and come in the next day and watch it cold and then I make a lot of changes. There's a lot yeah. of things that just hit me like a ton of bricks. But yeah. then after that, after that first 24-hour period, I have lost all objectivity. Now I'm mm -hmm. useless until yeah. I send it to you, Matt. Right. And then why don't you talk about what you, what you, what you, how you guys respond to it? If people sat in the music uh, session with us, which we just listened to, um, and, and just so, so they know you're not there, you know, we're just listening to the music cold we're hearing it for the first time, you know, I, I, you know, give a percentage of it. This is most of the, it's like, good, moving on, moving on. And it really, because at this point, I think not only, you know, the characters, you know, the show, you know, the vibe, we have a lot of conversations prior, you know, you just get it. It just does exactly what it's supposed to do. It either builds tension or it adds emotion or you know, whatever it does. And then there's moments where sometimes it's like, oh, hey, hold on a second. Maybe we need something a little different here. It's it's not quite, you know, we we wanted this scene to play a little more humorous than than it is. And and then so we give you that note. And next next thing you know, we get the cue back, and there it is, you know. And 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 there's certain scenes that we've done that with a little more than than others. But a lot of times that's it. it for the most part, and I think this is going back a long time, sometimes it's very rare that, that, that it bounces back a bunch. 
For me, yeah. it's mostly one or two at the most, and then and then we're moving on. And, and whenever a lot of it times, does, there's no notes at all. Yeah, and and whenever it does bounce back and forth a bunch, that's when I know I don't understand the story. There's there's some it, then it's like we get on a call and it's like you just gotta walk me yep. through. And there's usually it's like there's a puzzle piece missing. Oh, there's yeah. that's what's happening, you know? Yes. Um, and 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 that's because that's the thing. If I if I'm missing and our, our story is very dynamic and very layered, it's it's easy to miss things sometimes. Yeah, it um, is. So it's been very helpful that back and forth. And that's what's fun for me as an artist. And I think that's what makes the show rewarding for viewers, that there are these scenes that stand out. We know, we all know, like, that's going to be one we got to bounce back and forth. It's not obvious. Um, and, and I think that that's what's great is that, like, we, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a trust that, like, okay, that scene's working. We're just going to move ahead and get into the stuff is more complicated. It, you know? Exactly. Because if we, if we all just lavished that time on it, which we could do, on every single cue in the show, we wouldn't make our deadlines. Well, that's exactly right. And and that that's what the trust is built up. But even prior to Outlander, like you've said, Battlestar and 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 um just the, the years of working together. So what's this next question? I'm curious about how the Jamie and Claire theme came to be. Please enlighten us. There you go. Well, it goes back to um the first episode, and I knew I wanted to write something beautiful for them. And admittedly, um, I was terrified. I felt the pressure of like writing this theme. And so I kind of put a pin in it and I was like, I'm going to score this episode in order chronologically. Uh, and if you recall, like the first episode is, is her and Frank for like 40 minutes. Yes. So I just really, and, and, and Frank was almost easier like he's more reserved he's a good guy but he's also got that kind of like british restraint and i wrote this lovely little clarinet piece and i was like ah great easy no problem but in a way, I was just procrastinating, right? Yeah, yeah. And then writing it in order, I, I, it was the first scene when she, she meets him. She travels back in time, and then she's you know traveling in the rain, and I can't offer any explanation other than it's like staring at that scene. I just heard these strings kind of doing this undulating bed, and then I just heard this penny whistle. There it is. And, and, yeah. and, and it came so easily. So I, I don't want to say I didn't struggle. I struggled like for a week or two. But then it's like when you're, when you're in the right moment, the thing just sort of, I wish I could, if I could explain how that happens and put it into yeah. like a book or a bottle, I'd be a millionaire. You know, yeah, exactly. it's just one of those. <laughs> so yeah. that's about all I can say. Let's get another question in here. When composing for a new season, how do you decide when to bring back old motifs from past seasons <laughs> and when to create uh, something new? It's a lot of yeah. discussion and back and forth, and that is a great question because it is the first and almost only question we have at the beginning of a season. That's we'll it. get yeah. into the weeds with a scene. Like, we often, our first meeting is not even about any particular episode or we don't look nope. at anything. It's just to nope. talk about 
what the season is and what the direction is. Some of the themes we'll we'll talk like in the early early on, we'll know when a, a bigger you know uh, the new couple or something's happening. We we'll go, hey, bear, you know, just so you get in your head. We may need a theme for this, like Fraser's Ridge or you know yeah. uh, Roger Brian, you know things like that. Yeah, the the Ferguson Marsali theme, which played for like thirty seconds in season three. Right. And then in season four, but I, I was just pl playing long game, you know? Because I knew we would have more of it in the future. Yes, yes. But it's like, th those are those great conversations. That's what makes Outlander so rewarding is that there are so many opportunities to do it fast and just go, oh, they're getting married. Just write a marriage cue and be done with it. But it's like, no, let's, let's take a minute and write a theme that is worth calling back to years yes. in the future. And I know we talked about, you know, wanting to get a little bit more of the revolutionary war feeling into some of these things, which you've done uh, in in a way that, and I heard it um, a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah. You know, and um, I'm not going to give it away, but it was just like, oh, there it is. You know what I mean? And and just when you think Bear's not paying attention, he's paying attention <laughs> and he's going to give you something, so... Uh, hey man, I've been planting that seed since season three. No, the end I know, credits I of the last episode of season three. I'm, I'm ready I know to go. that one. I love that one. I love that one. That was my one of my favorites. When we end uh, after the hurricane, and then we hear that, and it's just like, oh yeah, this is where we're going. It's like, welcome to America. One of the things that I love about Outlander, not even visually, not only visually but musically, is how we call back. We call back and we call back, and I think season five and that first uh, fiery cross scene, and remember you called yeah. back to it later. Season two, and, yeah. And and it was like, oh my God, that's so great because it was haunting then, it's haunting now, and it ties everybody, the families together. And those are the things I love. I love when when you get that sense of the investment. The, you know, the fans yeah. that have been here from day one, you give them a payoff because they'll they'll hear that and they'll go, I don't know when I heard it, but I know I've heard it. And it just makes me feel good. And and I love yeah. when we do that. 501 is still one of my fondest memories on the whole show. When Jamie is going to light the cross and so he, he opens the dusty old chest, you know, yeah. with his like attire for the first time in 20 years or something. And it's like, yeah. it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that if we hear that folk song, that nationalist sort of patriotic song from season two during the Jacobite uprising. If that comes yeah. back here, it's so metal. Like, because yeah. people are just going to, it's just going to have that visceral reaction because Jamie hasn't opened this thing, you know, for 20 years, but yeah. we haven't heard that in three years. on that nostalgia. And that's just a great tool as a storyteller, as a dramatist, that music bypasses your logical brain and just goes right to your emotions. I love that we have so many opportunities on, on our show to do that. Do you ever get stuck when composing? If so, what helps you get unstuck? I trust in the, the story and the, 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 the footage and the actors, and I trust in my instincts. So that if I go, man, I, I'm struggling. I don't, I don't know if I can make this work, or I don't know what it should be. I just tell myself to put anything down. Anything is better than nothing. Um, I'll just start with a chord, just something, and that I trust that as that process begins, then I can start to shape it. 
it's better to get a cue in front of you and start talking about it than to get yeah. hung up on self-doubt and then you guys don't hear anything. But that's the same with the scene. You know, I write a scene and you go, I just got to get something down on paper here and just get the words going. Um, I often say that, oddly, you as the writer and me as the composer are the only people in production that really face a an empty page. You just have in theory, like the vaguest idea of what you want to accomplish, but it's like, I just have to start barfing ideas out. And it's it's yeah. very, um, uh, you're very vulnerable. And so the, the trick I use is I sometimes tell myself, okay, you have permission, Bear, to write the worst music you've ever written in your life. It can, this is, in fact, it's going to be terrible. Just commit to writing something terrible. Fine. And then I start. And then yeah. it's just, it's often just starting is, is, is where I'm my own worst enemy. And then once I get going, um, I get inspired. You know, you stand in front of keyboards. You know, I have a keyboard, you have a keyboard. And it's like, yeah. I got to do something now. So I know, and the is, idea that like, well, which, which character speaks first and what do they say is really similar to like a cello solo, a trumpet. Uh, like, I mean, what, where do I, th there's so many colors at Absolutely. your disposal, just like there's so many words. Like, what do you, and, and that's our instinct as writers. Like, you're going to write what you write and, and I'm going to write what I write. And we just sort of trust that like our experience and, and our instincts and our taste are going to land somewhere where we want the show to be. Yeah, exactly. In f episode 511, when Claire serves the journey cake, I believe I hear the Bonnie Banks Olak Loman. Is that correct? As we all know, the intro is based on the Skyboat song. Are there any other pieces of music that made it into the soundtrack but probably haven't been recognized as such? I believe that it is. Um, I'd have to go back and double check. But there's folk tunes everywhere. Right, right. Everywhere. Like that that tune, Loch Lomond, was used in 102. It was a big one when Claire was first kind of looking around uh, the castle. And it was a nice place to be. 105, I think, is when I really got into the Jacobite songs. All these with songs. With the, uh, the Rent. Yeah, we're going with, that was Rent, yeah. Uh, and when they find the, the sort of hanged people on the road, there was the... Yep. The Highland Widow's Lament. There's so many, like so many folk songs from that era um, that I use. Um, so yes, um, there are there are a ton of them. Um, have there any that are there any that haven't been noticed? I don't know. There's one that probably wouldn't be noticed if I didn't constantly point it out. <laughs> the Compte. The Compte in season two. You know, he's a great antagonist. Really magnetic actor, too. I mean, the minute he walked on screen, it's like this guy's gonna be fun. He's based on a real person. Yeah. And that real person was sort of a, a Renaissance man who was a philosopher and a writer and, yes, a composer. Oh, wow. He wrote music. So I had my music historian friend who does research for me go to the music library at USC and find the closest thing to the most famous piece of music he ever wrote. That's oh, his wow. theme. His theme is being played on a viola da gamba, an instrument of that time, and it's the character himself wrote that theme. I think that's pretty awesome. I so think that is. There's a little that goes beyond awesome. That is really cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. And by the way, that's how deep 
you go on Outlander, you know, exactly. to make it to make it special. And I, I love that. And I, if anybody did catch it, they had a really good time. That is, uh, for me, I just love that. I mean, I, that's the first time I'm hearing about it, so I really love it. How many different instruments have been used over the years to compose Outlander music? And does a composer need experience in playing all the instruments to incorporate them into the work? Lastly, how many instruments can you play? These are great questions. Ultimately, composing and performing or playing an instrument are very different disciplines. Um, no, you don't need to be able to play every instrument. I play piano, I play uh, accordion, and I play hurdy-gurdy, uh, and I've used it on Outlander from time to time. Um, but no, I rely on the brilliant musicians that I know to play um, bagpipes, penny whistle, fiddle, Bowron, which is that pitch-shifting um, Irish drum that you hear all throughout the show. Uh, percussion, every instrument in the orchestra. And as we get into America, I use banjo and dulcimer and um, like pedal steel guitar, all kinds of weird stuff, upright bass. Yeah. My job is to learn how those instruments work, to understand where they sound good in their range and write music that shows them off well. Yeah. So, so really, it's like I have to understand them to be able to write for them, uh, but no, I don't. I don't need to play them. And uh, and indeed, most of my work is done um, with computer software that allows me to create a facsimile, a mock-up of what the instrument kinda will sound like after the cue is approved. Then we get live players because um, the score. I mean, I've talked about samples and stuff, but the score is a live score. It's all live. Yeah, the orchestra is yeah, live. That, the solos are live, and that's what gives it that warmth. Once you record it. That it just, you know, is, is booms off and it's just amazing and all the feelings yeah. you want. Yeah. Do you have any instrument you like to incorporate in your music, no matter the style or genre? The short answer is no. I love to genre hop. I love to do things that are different. It's one of the reasons that Outlander is so fun is that in itself, I get to genre hop getting to use something that is really bold and would only fit in one context is what inspires me. Um, the obvious thing that comes to mind for Outlander are the bagpipes. Um, yeah. I made a video once called Nobody Likes Bagpipes, joking about how I wanted <laughs> to use bagpipes in everything, but yeah. it's only kind of a joke. But but <laughs> but really, uh, yeah, that I, I don't I don't like to think of myself as someone with a with a stamp. I'm almost repulsed by that idea. I want to come, I, I strive and fail to reinvent myself every time yeah. I do something, you know? Um, but that's, I think, the life of an artist is you're always looking for something new and maybe falling short, but in the meantime, then you're like changing the way you approach your art. You never know what you're going to get on Outlander from season to season. And, and, and it feels, you know, if, and it feels right for the story. So, yeah. Um, is there a piece of music or pieces that you still find extremely moving or emotional uh, to you after all these seasons? I have a weird relationship to them all because I, you know, I wrote them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, the, um, the first one that comes to mind, season two premiere with Frank and sort of burning the clothes, moving with Frank. I mean, dude, I'm getting chills.
Something about that cue and that scene um, destroyed me when I wrote it. And uh, I listened to it the other day for some weird reason. And I was, it came up on a shuffle or something and I stopped what I was doing and I had to stop and just go, I, I wrote this? Like, <laughs> this is a, like, I just had to stop and, cause it was fresh again. I hadn't heard it in a few years. I don't know, what stands yeah. out to you, Matt? You know, I mean, we already talked about it. I, I love the opening of season five. I mean, it invokes so much. And the other piece that will always forever just resonate with me is the, the final credits in um, season five. So it's beginning and the end where Rhea yeah. sings a cappella. And I mean, that to me really ties the season in so beautifully. Sing me a song of a last that is gone. Say could that last be I? We did that. We were bold enough to do that. And I love that. I listen to that every day. So Yeah, it's it's great to have these kind of memorable moments burned into your brain, you know? And, yeah. and I think they'd be memorable to to us even just as viewers. I mean, that's what I, I resonate with fans because I'm like, I am a fan. And these yeah. scenes that we're talking about, it's like, that would, if I was just watching this show, I, I, I'd i never forget that moment. So the fact that we get to make it and be yeah. part of it and like, that that's what makes it even better, you know? Yeah, it does. So I just want to say this has been really fun, Bear, to get to let the audience know some of the kind of the behind the scenes and how we work. If there's anything else you want to kind of add at this moment, just, I mean, I just want to say that um, trying to like top that season five main title uh, has been has been a challenge and a and a joyous experience. But I am so excited about where things are going yeah. um, this season. So I just want to tease that a little and just say like, you know, fans, if fans are asking, are you going to change the main title? Like, you don't need to ask that anymore. Like, yeah. I, I I think we we feel like that's baked into the. It's it, baked into the cake now, you know? It, it really it really is. And I think that, you know, when we talked early on in season five, I said it's a community coming together. And that was the sound we want to bring to the main title. And as we know, you and I know what's coming in season six, the main title will reflect that. And I think we've, we're have we getting we're getting so close that, that um, we can taste it. So I, I yeah. love that it's going to, to be new and fresh. And But we're doing it out of a, a genuine love of the story and a desire to foreshadow the story for you. Exactly. And the idea that like, yeah, some people are going to be upset by that is, is just something that we both agreed upon immediately and went, all right, but that's what's going to happen. And now let's, let's move forward let's without move forward. fear of that. Yes. And that's the key is you, you have to get rid of the, the fear of being afraid of change because over the course of, as we know, Outlander changes every season. And that's what is a part of the show. And if we're afraid to do it, if we try to make it the same, then it's not Outlander. So, yeah, I've never created anything in that environment that I was proud of, you know, yeah, and I'm exactly. very proud of what we're working on right now. Yes, I am, too. I am so excited. I, I almost... I almost want to play a sample form, but we're not going to because I'm so <laughs> yes. excited for when uh, when it comes out. But um, anyway, Bear, this has been really fun and it's been too long. We should have done this earlier, but I'm glad we did. And uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us on uh, the Droughtlander version of the official Outlander um, podcast. Until next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks, everybody.